On the Greek island of Lesbos, three humanitarian volunteers scan the ocean before them. Turkey is on the other side, just a few miles from the hill where they stand. They look out through binoculars at NATO ships and Coast Guard vessels. They see tiny movements on the water as boats cut a path between the two coasts. That's what they're looking for, the boats carrying refugees. There's less in the news these days about the European refugee crisis, but boats continue to navigate treacherous waters, teeming with people desperate to cross into Europe. But this story is about another type of border, a different kind of barrier, one we don't hear so much about. It's about the barrier of language. I'm Charles Sennett, and this is Ground Truth, a podcast in partnership with WGBH. Ground Truth brings you reporting from the ground by the next generation of journalists. Holly Young, a Scottish reporter based in Berlin, traces a refugee journey from beach landing to refugee camps to an asylum interview through the stories of three people. All of them arrived in Europe to seek asylum, and all have worked as interpreters. They know from personal experience that words and people fall through the cracks. The volunteers on the north shore of Lesbos scan the water 24 hours a day. It can be hours, a whole day and night even, of just watching and waiting. And then, suddenly, something. It's dawn on Lesbos, and at the end of the harbour, in a tiny fishing village, three of the landing response team, an Israeli nurse and one member of the Greek Coast Guard, are preparing for a boat to arrive. They've done this before, but can never be sure what to really expect. There could be injuries or the aftermath of a traumatic crossing. Some arrive only just surviving towering waves and stalling motors. Some boats head straight towards the lighthouse a few hundred metres away, crashing into rocks the light is there to warn against. And, of course, some don't make it at all. But this morning, the crossing was calm. An inflatable dinghy carrying 38 people was intercepted at sea, and now the rescue team is bringing them to shore. The volunteers help people step off the boat. A two-month-old baby, cradled by its mother, is passed off first. Then there's a little boy with a woolen hat, his trousers tucked into his socks. And a man who steps off the boat and picks up his briefcase like he's late for work. Flimsy life vests are thrown into a pile. And the volunteers distribute emergency blankets. There's this intense, nervous eye contact, but few words from those stepping off the boat. And the volunteers don't know for sure where everybody is from, or what languages they speak. Dozens, perhaps even hundreds of mother tongues have arrived on these shores over the years. 
Then one of the volunteers starts to greet people in Arabic. And I see one young man's face just burst into this huge smile, maybe of surprise, maybe of relief, when he hears her. Like, imagine that you are in the water, you don't know which country you are, and then you hear a new language that's you in Greece. You feel relieved. 23-year-old Sarah Mardini from Damascus knows the importance of these first words on the beach. She wasn't at the boat landing I attended, but interprets in Arabic at landings in the south of the island for a non-profit organisation called Emergency Response Centre International. It's like really intense sometimes in the dark. And in real life, I think I, I always think I'm a hyper person and I'm always noisy and all around. But I discovered that I have really uh, the ability to calm people down. Separating real life, as Sarah calls it, from the work she's doing here has taken a while. When Sarah started the job, she had trouble sleeping. She imagined she could actually feel the boats on the way over. Sometimes she was right, sometimes she was wrong. Sarah has a history with these beaches. In August 2015, she was on the other side of the water in Turkey with her younger sister Yusra. They had left their destroyed family home in Damascus and fled the Syrian civil war to reach Europe. The two girls climbed into an inflatable dinghy with 18 others in Turkey. Not long after they left the shore, the motor stopped and the boat started taking in water. Few of these passengers could swim and they knew how many of these stories ended. They threw their luggage into the sea. It was little use. So Sarah decided to jump into the water. Then she was followed by her younger sister. And as it turns out, the sisters were trained swimmers. For the next three hours across miles of rough ocean, the teenage girls guided the dinghy. And everybody in the end that night survived and stepped onto the beach in Lesbos. I just felt scared that night from the, the water and Later when we landed, just been a dream. It was like a dream, totally disorientating. Like, you know, the minute you're on the shore, you just flash back and is, is that real? You know, until now I see like thinking about, is that even real what happened? It's just weird. It's like far from real. Sarah doesn't remember anyone speaking Arabic, her mother tongue, to her when she arrived. So now that she's on the other side, the one greeting people on the beach in Arabic, she knows that just a few words, mostly practical instructions, can have a huge emotional impact, deflating the anxiety of that moment. So when I come to the boat landings, um, my job is to calm the people down and say for them that they're in Greece and we're going to help them. So I'm directing the people, which my voice needs to be so strong and sharp, but at the same time with a calm tone. It's loud, but it's calm. Sarah also works at the refugee camps on the island, where people like those I witnessed landing at dawn are moved to after arrival. And my left side is the clothes shop, which is clothes distribution. And then now we are entering the residential area, which is full of isoboxes, olive trees, and kids everywhere playing. 
Can you explain what, what, what is an ISO box? An ISO box is the, it's a container on the ship, in the sea. Shipping container. Shipping container, exactly. But this one is more like, like a house and has a windows and a door. And is it like one family per box? Or? Yes. Okay. There's a box of fit for four. Salam alaikum. And yeah, that's, that's how is it. Trash bins on our right side. Residential area on the left side. In the camps, uh, interpretation gets more demanding. She often finds herself, for example, sitting between refugees and doctors. She joked when she doesn't know the medical term, she just points at the body part. But in fact, she's really sensitive to what she hears. Sometimes men tell her things they wouldn't tell a woman back in Syria. They trust her. A bad interpretation could mean somebody getting the wrong diagnosis, even the wrong treatment. If I get something wrong, she said, I might actually hurt someone. And in front of us, we have the main bathrooms. <laughs> the female and the male part. <laughs> what are they shouting at you? Salam <laughs> alaikum. She's had to learn on the job. One hour, it could be explaining how the washing machines work. The next, recounting somebody's story of rape or losing family. Interpreters are easy to overlook. They respond to a need that is basically invisible. But in places like Lesbos, they are like the grease that keeps the whole machine of humanitarian response running. If you need a doctor, a psychologist, a social worker, a lawyer, unless you speak English, you're almost certainly going to need an interpreter. People have appointments for their papers or if there's any updates, they come here. And on my left side, there is a small But who that person is matters. Interpretation, which deals with speech, just like translation, which deals with text, is a really finely tuned skill. The stakes are high when it goes wrong, and doing it right needs time, it needs expertise and money. Lesbos is a place with stretched resources. Thousands live in the camps here, and there's not enough trained interpreters to meet the demand. So often, informal interpretation patches the gaps. Children translating in adult conversations for their parents or refugees translating for people living in their own camp, which makes confidentiality extremely tricky. I just feel like everybody should be really careful with what they say because we are in an emergency. Like, it's an emergency. All the island is an emergency. And we have to choose our words carefully for this emergency. Because we might affect people's lives. Sarah knows the next stage of people's lives isn't going to be simple. Few refugees on Lesbos want to stay here. The relief of arrival in Europe is, if anything, just the start of another journey. The question of where refugees end up after arriving in places like Lesbos doesn't have a straightforward answer. Since 2015, for example, routes have changed as policies in EU countries have shifted, mostly to be more restrictive. But many have hoped to get to places like Germany. And when they did, they often ended up in camps once again. Camps like the one in West Berlin, where I met Ashikula Safi. 
our next so, interpreter. Yeah, I didn't know so many people would be here. So. Yeah, okay. Um, is Safi is 33, he's gushingly polite and super chatty. And he worked in the camp as an interpreter and social worker. And in one afternoon he helped me interview a group of Afghan refugees. Can they tell me a little bit like what life's like to live here? This particular group were really disillusioned. Uh, he says that our first problem is that why all the Afghanis are rejected and they are not being uh, um, accepted as refugees. Sure. And we are not being uh, um, awarded with uh, asylum. Mm -hmm. so Germany had declared Afghanistan a safe country of origin. That means their prospects of asylum compared to, say, Syrians are not as good. And by the way, I've been using the term refugee loosely. That's technically a legal status that these people don't yet have. So they waited, and with diminishing hope. Uh, he says that we are here for the last two years, uh, almost 18 months differently. But, uh, two years? Two years. And uh, that's a good question, that how long will we remain here in this camp? Yeah. But that's not our decision. Yeah. Uh, we want to uh, move from this camp as soon as possible mm -hmm. to get our own apartment or uh, a room where we have our own privacy. To help you visualise this place, it's a huge former conference hall filled with hundreds of wooden bunk beds where you have people from dozens of countries, cultures, languages, all side by side. There's almost no natural light. They talked about the noise, not being able to sleep or cook for themselves, the lack of privacy. At one point, a man pulled out his phone to show me a video of bedbugs crawling on his baby daughter's arms while she slept. But he says, I am sick and the doctor told me that this place is not favourable for you yeah. because of your psychological situations uh -huh. uh, and you can't sleep. And he says that I have depression also. Uh -huh. and Safi hears what life is really like here. People share their mental health issues, ask advice on how to get a divorce. And just like with Sarah, they need Safi because what makes everything else even harder here is not being able to speak the language. Since two years I'm living here, but I can't speak a single word of German. Now, in theory, when refugees arrive in Germany, the process of integration begins. Learning German is one of the key demands placed on new arrivals. Put simply, on the German asylum website, if you would like to live in Germany, you should learn German. And Safi couldn't agree more. If you understand a language, if you un then you can understand the community, you can understand the psyche of the people, you can understand the so social system, you can understand news, you can read newspaper, you can watch media. Uh, you can a little bit understand what, what things should I do, uh, what is the requirement, as, what is the, my role, what the people demands from me. Uh, how should I react? Because I have to react a little bit different as I react in my country. You make friends uh, if you understand, because understanding is friendship. Learning the language if you're a refugee is political, but it's also personal, as Safi explained. It's like the seam running through this whole new experience. It's the key to practical things, obviously, ordering food, navigating transport, but it's also your emotional life, finding friends, belonging, identity, all the stuff that slowly unfolds through everyday interactions. 
And if you are not helped in the market, if you are not helped in the train station, if you cannot buy your tickets, if you nothing, then then you are nothing. You are you are a dead person. First war, then the journey to Europe. The camps are almost another chapter in survival. And it's one that leaves some feeling defeated. He says that uh, we cannot go outside because we don't speak the language and we feel ashamed when we cannot communicate with people. That's a very shameful thing for yeah. us, he says to me. And he says you might think, OK, learning German's hard work, but surely you just get on with it. But bear in mind a few things. Firstly, the camp was noisy, so it's hard to concentrate, do homework or even get enough sleep. And they were juggling learning alongside so many other things. Dealing with separation from family and home, endless asylum bureaucracy and for some, processing traumatic events. Plus, some never had the opportunity to learn to read or write in their mother tongue. And of course, they don't even know if they're going to be able to stay much longer in the country to actually use the language. So this group were in this weird limbo, losing confidence and becoming isolated. And he says that we remain at home and we play with our uh, mobiles, mm -hmm. with internet, <laughs> and, yeah. and all the time we stay at rooms. In rooms. Safi was familiar with this process of gradual isolation and he's critical of how the asylum system treats people. But interestingly, he's also critical of refugees for not trying harder. Safi speaks fluent German, even above the level integration courses aim for. But Safi is pretty remarkable. His backstory is like multiple life stories packed into 33 years. The languages he speaks, Pashto, Urdu, English, Swedish and German, are like a sort of sound map of where his life has taken him. In Kabul, he grew up in a Marxist atheist household. His father was involved in politics and was assassinated when Safi was 12. So at 12, he went from a house filled with servants to living in a tent in a refugee camp across the border in Pakistan. And since then, he spent the last 20 years in and out of refugee camps. Almost from 1997 up to now, I'm, I am not in a, in a safe position. Language plays into the reason Safi fled in the first place. In 2006, Safi worked as an interpreter for American troops in Afghanistan. He knew other interpreters who were targeted and tortured, seen as traitors. This, along with his family's political history, is why he fled to Europe. And in each place he's been, from Pakistan to Sweden to Germany, he's been desperate to learn. For example, stuck in a remote refugee camp in rural Sweden, he took himself every day to the local library. I saw the library, it was so beautiful, and I said, yeah, it's a paradise, you know, like I will come every day here. He started with the kids' books, then practiced conversation with locals. And he was fluent in Swedish by the time he was deported back to Afghanistan. Back in Kabul, he faced more death threats. I was always guarded by bodyguards, security, and with, with driver, four or five people, but that's not enough. The bomb placed outside his office was the last straw. Back to Europe to seek asylum. He was on his way back to Sweden when plain-clothed police officers stopped him in Berlin's main station. He pleaded with them to let him move on, 
I've already learned Swedish, he said. I can't start over again with German. Yeah, yeah I argued with him that I want to go back to Sweden and I live there and I'm a resident. He searched his bag for the Swedish library card he always kept with him as proof he'd lived there. But it did not work. That was three years ago. Now, Monday to Friday, Safi does an internship at a biochemistry firm. On Saturdays, he works as an interpreter in another refugee camp in Berlin, passing messages between two worlds, between staff and residents, between the asylum system and those seeking its protection. He still lives in a camp himself and, just like the Afghans we spoke to, he still hasn't been granted asylum. He gets anxiety from time to time, he tells me, but he describes himself as a machine, taking it day by day, putting one new word after another. Uh, More than that, I can't do anything. Even if any month now, he could be deported back to Kabul and it could all be for nothing. Learning the language is not enough to get permission to stay. The UN asylum interview requires applicants to prove that they have been persecuted and are in fear of future persecution. Everything had been leading up to this day for 28-year-old Alhareth Allah, our next interpreter, fleeing from Baghdad, surviving the journey to Europe, the months waiting in a Berlin refugee camp. What Alhareth said in that interview room would decide his future. Your life depends on this interview because it's, everything depends on your words, on in your story, what, what you are saying. This story that's showing you are in danger. I didn't come here like for nothing. He sat nervously that morning in the waiting room at the Department for Migration and Refugees. At 8.30, his name was called. The interview room was plain, a table with an interviewer and a computer. Al-Haref had worked as a professional interpreter, but on this day, he was on the receiving end. Now, everyone is legally entitled to an interpreter in the interview, and he needed an Arabic one. He barely spoke any German. He took a seat, and then he started to tell his life story. It was like difficult for me, because it was the first time, you know, to be asked about my life, about my story, and the reasons why I came here, you know. It was first time, first interview in my life. I was stressed, because I don't know what exactly to say, you know. It was hard to know where to start, but over four hours he went through everything he thought was important. Growing up in a war. Bombing everywhere. Every day killing the people on the street. It was normal. Witnessing his father's assassination on the doorstep of his home. He opened the door and I see like two person. I was shooting my father with guns. Being targeted on his way home from school in 2009. They kidnapped me. Then my mom paid the money to the terrorist. How his mum sent him away to Ukraine to study pharmacy and safety, then back to Baghdad in 2015. To have a normal life. You know, as I finish my study, I should go back to my uh, country, like to war. Then there were letters, phone calls. To say something that, okay, they they going to kill me or some stuff like this. And then a second kidnapping in 2016. I was coming back from the pharmacy to home and they, they kidnapped me. And they asked for money. His mother paid the ransom and he got released, but he knew it was time to leave again. By the early afternoon, he had finished telling his story. The interviewer seemed impressed he spoke so many languages, had worked as an interpreter and was also a qualified pharmacist. Germany needs people like you. 
exactly educated you can speak like a lot of languages okay so she said okay don't worry you're gonna like it i thought okay everything's gonna go well no problems everything seemed to go well eight months later a letter arrived for him at his refugee shelter i just opened it i knew that i got negative answer i just opened it no i said i don't have to read it he didn't even have to translate the bureaucratic German, he says, because he recognised the most important word, the word he'd seen on other people's letters, abgelehnt, rejected. Like, I was shocked, you know, I had, like, everything. I forgot about everything, everything actually, you know. I came here just to be safe, and I have my real story with my proof. He thought his story and the police reports he brought would be enough for Germany to grant him asylum. Surely he would be able to stay, to be safe. But clearly something went wrong. He got out the transcript of the interview. It was in German, so he hadn't read it yet. And besides, he didn't think he needed to. He sent pictures of it to a friend who translated it from German to Arabic. Right away, Alharef saw problems. There were sections of his story missing and mistakes some small, some big. I'm telling him more information, more details. But he, he's giving something like a shortcut. The interpreter was just summarising his answers, cutting out the detail. I think he, he don't know how to translate, like in which way. And by simplifying it, was warping his story. He's changing the way. I'm giving the answer in like in like a clear way, and he's changing because he don't maybe he don't he don't know enough words or he's not professional. Al-Haref believes this guy wasn't professional, and that's now the basis for his appeal of the rejection, that he was mistranslated. Like Sarah and Safi, Al-Haref knows the interpreter is the most powerful person in the room, the only person to see both sides of the situation. And this is especially the case in the asylum interview room. Interviewers are looking for consistency and to be convinced so the nuance of what you say is absolutely crucial. As he saw it, his life literally depended on the clarity of his words. I should translate in the same way how he was saying. I will never change the way, because maybe sometimes if you are changing the way, like you're giving another meaning. And Al-Haref is not the only person to see his claims for asylum be lost in translation. It's a wider problem. Even the German Association of Interpreters and Translators has criticised the department that conducts interviews for not having good quality controls on interpreters. People told me of interviews where their interpreter could barely understand them. New procedures were introduced last year in Germany to set higher standards for interpreters. But it's too little too late for Al-Haref. He feels he's lost years of his life to these mistakes. His life is in limbo while the appeal is underway. I'm wasting my time for nothing now. At the same time, I'm learning German. Because I have, I have no other choice, you know. I can, I have my plan to do my PhD. Because without documents, you cannot move. He's frustrated. He can't plan for his future or travel anywhere. Two years or more, I, I didn't see my mother, you know. I missed my family, I missed, like... My friends, you know, I'm just sitting here, like in the jail, you know, you cannot move. He feels his life is kind of frozen in time. Can't do anything. One interpreter put it to me this way. 
If there were enough qualified interpreters for everyone, more people would know their rights and more people would be granted asylum. It's convenient for Europe to have selective hearing. And it's not just asylum applications on the line. I've encountered stories of women who can't find an interpreter to report being raped or trafficked. Unaccompanied children who don't get information about dangerous routes to avoid. Migrants who get put on trial in courtrooms with inadequate interpretation. And if you speak a rare language, say one of the hundreds spoken in Nigeria, the challenges are even greater. For many, getting lost in translation isn't an irritation. It can be life-changing. There's no barbed wire or bricks when it comes to language barriers, but being heard or not is about power. Of our three interpreters, Al-Hareth from Iraq, Safi from Afghanistan, Sarah from Syria, only Sarah's asylum application has been approved. Sarah and her sister's story is one that Europe does want to hear. In fact, it's brought them global attention. And she could run with that through all of these doors it's opened for her. But instead, Sarah came back to Lesbos. We definitely feel that we are blessed, me and my sister, because we didn't lose anything. And we made it here and, uh, and uh, we got the life that we wanted. Uh, but, but I think I see I have guilt. I feel guilt, um, and uh, because I didn't like what I've been through, uh, in some some point. So I really wanted like people doesn't to not feel that. Working at the Moria refugee camp, which is often called the worst camp in Europe, she's seen the sharp edge of the continent's refugee response. It can be totally demoralizing. While I was visiting Sarah, protests broke out over the inhumane conditions. But there can also be brief moments of beauty. Last New Year's Eve, half an hour before midnight, Sarah was preparing to celebrate when she got a call. A boat had landed. She and other volunteers rushed to the beach. Okay, so first I say, uh, turn the engine off, which is Tafil Motor. And then I say, um, welcome your increase, ahlo sahla, and tubilunan. Sarah and the volunteers helped people safely to the shore. Suddenly, it was almost midnight. And one guy was like watching the hour. So it was like five seconds, and then we all sing together. Standing on the beach, the volunteers and the new arrivals brought in the new year, counting down together in Arabic. Yeah, and I think they would never forget it. It's just, um, it means a lot. That was Holly Young reporting. Holly came to us through the Ground Truth Podcast Incubator, our program that supports emerging audio producers and reporters. Since we last spoke with Sarah Mardini, the Greek government brought charges against her and two others from the Emergency Response Center International. The formal complaint includes charges of money laundering, espionage, and membership in a criminal organization. 
Her lawyer and other refugee advocates say the claims are baseless. The arrest came after Holly's reporting, and we stand by her story. We will keep you updated as more information becomes available. On our website, thegroundtruthproject.org, you can see images from the Lesbos Coast. You can also find a list of the music used in the program. This piece was produced by Rachel Rohr, with editing help from Rob Rosenthal. Sound designed by Mitch Hanley. I'm Charles Sennett, executive producer of the podcast and founder of The Ground Truth Project, which supports a new generation of journalists on the ground. Thanks to Nina Porzuki, Phil Rado, Bob Kempf, John Ryan, and Doug Sugertz at WGBH. Funding for this episode comes from WGBH News, Voices Against Injustice, and the MacArthur Foundation. Next week on Ground Truth. On the South Korean island of Gonghua, where North Korean defectors gather. They're throwing the bottles of rice and other goods into the water, and you're starting to see them flow down the current towards North Korea. He seems like he's amused by this. Not that amusing. I mean, they're threatening to kill me. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know what you think and give us a rating. Tell your friends they can subscribe to the Ground Truth Podcast on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever they listen. If you ever miss an episode, you can find the entire archive at our website, thegroundtruthproject.org. Thanks for listening.